0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith. And you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Today's talk is going to be on the Epistle of Barnabas. And the Epistle of Barnabas is an apocryphal work, and I want to talk for a little bit about uh, basically three things throughout this evening, divide the talk into three equal parts. One is going to be just a little refresher on what is apocrypha. And then we're going to talk about the background of Barnabas, some things about the Epistle to Barnabas, where the letter comes from, what its purpose is. And then we're going to get into an overview of the text itself. So uh, those are our three goals this evening. What is Apocrypha? Where did Barnabas come from? What is it? And what are some of the interesting things about this text? For the full text, you could Google it, look it up online. I know earlychristianwritings.com has four different English public domain translations, all very decent. And so if you wanted the full text, it was a little bit lengthy, so uh, Deacon Sabatino decided that stewardship of the earth entailed not killing too many trees to print out copies for everyone, but we will have, I gave you a handout with two sections of text that we'll talk about a little bit at the end in detail, and I have a number of quotes from Barnabas scattered throughout the talk, and then the PowerPoint will be available at the Institute's online website. So, point number one, uh, what is Apocrypha? Basically, stuff that looks like Bible, but isn't. Maybe that's a very crude definition, but it's early Christian writing concerning the good news, what Jesus revealed, but it has been judged by the church to be not divinely inspired. And so that's going to be a key point that I want to keep in mind as we examine this, because a lot of these apocryphal books have names that sound like biblical books, but they're not. And they have even ways of referring to them, like by chapter and verse, that look like biblical books. Uh, But these, while they're early Christian writing, are judged by the church to be not divinely inspired sacred scripture. And so as a result, uh, they have a similar theme, a similar tone, but they lack the divinely inspired character that gives us something that is special when we're talking about sacred scripture. Uh, The name itself, Apocrypha, comes from a Greek term, literally meaning things that are hidden. Uh, these are less well-known compared to the biblical books. The Bible is the most published book in the world, and as a result, a lot of people have a great familiarity with at least the titles, if not the contents of biblical books. Apocryphal books, while early, and some of them enjoyed a pretty wide popularity, others, not so much so, were never quite as popular as the biblical books themselves, which were obviously cherished and passed down and copied, and so they are less well-known. Sometimes they're called hidden books. And in general, I don't know if you spent any time talking about the Apocrypha in recent previous institutes, but it can be uh, useful to know that there was a whole world of early Christian literature out there because sometimes people will use the hidden character, that is to say, the less well known character of these biblical books, kind of as a pretext for sensationalism. You know, uh, sometimes people go trolling through the Apocrypha, which exists in collections you can get yourself a nice multi-volume work of early Christian Apocrypha and Jewish Apocrypha and read through it. They're not locked up in some Vatican vault for only the uh, elite to have access to. But some people would pretend that these things are like uh, secret knowledge that the Church has kept under lock and key and only... You know, Mr. Brown with his Da Vinci Code has unlocked the seal and given you elite access into these hidden things that are forbidden for most people to read. No, not so. Most scholars have known about this, been around for a long time, the Church Fathers studied it, the medieval period was well aware of it, the Reformation had a whole new chance and perspective to review this kind of material, it's been part of critical Bible study for a long time as well. So, it's less well known, but it's by no means kept secret. Just want to rob the sensational value right there. Now, generally speaking, uh, how did the Apocrypha come about? To understand what makes something Apocrypha versus divinely inspired sacred scripture, it's useful to have a basic understanding of where we get our canon of sacred scripture, where we get our judgment that the New Testament, for example, includes these 27 books and no others. Now, this will be fast by way of review, because I want to actually spend time talking about Barnabas this evening. But just as a thumbnail sketch to work through some of the stages of how we got the 27 books of the New Testament that we have and that we call the New Testament, I wanted to quickly go through some of the stages. Probably most of you know that the, you know, first, the New Testament did not drop from the sky complete. Jesus didn't say, before I ascend, please sit down and duly record, these 27 books worth of information. Rather, these things were all written by individual people, individual places, for individual purposes, over a period of time that probably spanned from the mid-30s, if we take the traditional early dating for the Gospel of Matthew, all the way through perhaps to the very end of the first century, if we take the late dating for John's Apocalypse. So the the church of the first century didn't even have a complete New Testament for most decades, because it hadn't all been written down yet. Uh, but then after it was written down, of course, circulation and copying and agreement about what constituted the entire New Testament took some time. Uh, so please disabuse yourself of the notion that the church of the first, or even the second, or even the third century, was walking around with, everywhere, complete copies of the New Testament, like what you might carry around today. Not so. Canon formation takes some time. And so, remember, you know, if you want to make a copy of a book... There is no staples, there is no miracle of the internet where you can download a Bible in less than a second. Uh, these things took time, they took resources, everything had to be hand-copied, and while they had lots of paper and time on their hands, it was still a slower process than it is today. Uh, at the same time, the 27 books in our Bible were not the only books that were written by Christians about the mystery of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. You know, it was not just these 27 and no others, there was rather a whole host of books being written about what Jesus had done and what he had revealed, and it falls into a wide range of quality. Uh, I put some good, some not so good, and some positively contrary to the gospel. Uh, You know, there's no quality control on who gets to write a book about Jesus Christ. And so, uh, this, of course, provoked a need amongst the early church to sort out the wheat from the chaff. And... Curiously, uh, something I think we can appreciate as Catholics, one of the things that was an engine for the development of this thing we call the canonical 27 books of the New Testament was the liturgy. The Divine Liturgy, its regular celebration, uh, prompted the question, what books were suitable to be read at Mass? And this was one of the earliest ways in which the question of which books could be considered divinely inspired books about Jesus Christ came to light. Uh, Already in the second century, We can find record, and I'll give you a quote in a second from Justin Martyr, that uh, we have our basic liturgical pattern of people reading the Old Testament, putting together with that the New Testament, having a homily, and then having a Eucharist. Basically, your liturgy of the Word, sermon, and liturgy of the Eucharist. And maybe some of you know, maybe some of you don't, the Jews already had a lectionary cycle. In fact, they had several different lectionary cycles, depending on what place you were in uh, the places where Jews were. They had a one-year, a two-year, and a three-year cycle in some places. But already, down to this day, there's an established lectionary cycle where they would pair something from the Law of Moses together with a reading from the prophets. And that was uh, kind of like the pattern that we often have today, where we have you know, our Old Testament, our non-Gospel New Testament, and our Gospel. And they're sort of thematically connected. But that was something that the church started to do, springing forth out of Judaism, is to start to pair some reading from Moses or the prophets together with some reading from an apostolic figure and to use this as the liturgy of the word. Example, lots of text on this slide. I know that's not what you're supposed to do. But... um, this is a quote from St. Justin Martyr, as his name implies, he was a martyr. And he wrote the uh, two apologies, not I'm sorry, but in the old-fashioned sense of defenses of Christianity uh, to the Roman Emperor to sort of defend the Christians against persecution. Uh, dates from around 155 to 157 AD. And in the 67th chapter of the first apology, we get a nice quote about what an early Christian liturgy looked like. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And he calls these things the memoirs of the apostles, because they don't have the term New Testament yet. And the memoirs of the apostles, or the writings of the prophets, are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts us to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray... And as we before have said, when our prayer ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the President in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen, there's the great Amen, and there is a distribution to each, there's the communion, and a participation of that over which thanks have been given, and to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. So, a little diaconal ministry going on there, and if you want a great paragraph on the reality of the Eucharist just flip to the previous chapter where he says just as by the word of God coming over the blessed virgin Mary the word assumed flesh and blood so too by the word of the priest the bread and wine become the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ it's a little bit tangential to our talk but it's such a good Catholic point that if you flip back just one chapter chapter 66 sweet real presence Eucharistic text right there in Justin Martyr 155 AD uh, but there we get our basic pattern and so the question was Can it be read at Mass? That was basically how they walked up to the question of, is this book divinely inspired? Why they phrase it that way? Maybe another way to put it is, is this book, you know, of Paul, or of Mark, or of Matthew, on par with those things we already consider divinely inspired, i.e. the Law of Moses or the Prophets of the Old Testament? Is this of similar grade? And so, how did they begin to sort out what books were divinely inspired? And what did that ultimately lead us to in terms of canonical New Testament and those things that aren't, i.e. the Apocrypha? Uh, In the 2nd century, there was no centralized church authority. I know we're used to that. In the 19th and 20th century, we'll just have the Vatican do it. They'll take care of all of our problems. But no, uh, there was no centralized authority regulating the copying of texts or anything like that. Uh, No central clearinghouse of approval for all of these individual books. Rather, it was subsidiarity at work. It was the teaching, the ordinary teaching authority of the church at work. Individual bishops in their diocese determined the practice of their individual churches in the 2nd century. Uh, so it was up to the judgment of the bishop what was to be used at Mass. And there we see an important principle uh, that it was ultimately, in the 2nd, and indeed in the 3rd, and in the 4th century, the magisterial authority of the successors to the apostles, the bishops, that determined what texts were received as divinely inspired. Uh, Which I'll come back to in a little bit, it's a nice Catholic point though, but our very canon is springing out of two things, liturgy, and the care of the bishop over the liturgy of the local church. And so when bishops could not share texts, uh, they at least shared their opinions about books that they knew about. Ideally it would be nice to share a text, but if you didn't have time to copy out all the texts that you had for some other bishop who had them not, Uh, they would at least recount in a brief letter what titles they were aware of and basically put them into a category of divinely inspired. Good, but not divinely inspired, maybe has a couple of issues and stuff that's positively noxious or harmful and needs to be weeded out from circulation. A good example of that, and you can again pull it up online, uh, something called the Muratorian Fragment, discovered in the, what was it, early 19th century by an Italian archaeologist gives us a great example of a canonical list from Rome in the 170s. And if you read that, probably not that way, that's it, but a page of it. But if you read it in full length online, it's only two pages, you can pull it up, you can see that it will divide all the books that the author knows about into things fit to be read at Mass, i.e. divinely inspired, things useful for Christians but not to be considered inspired, And then things fit for the circular file, as some of us used to call the trash can before we recycled everything. Uh, Things that were heretical, things that were erroneous, things that were forgeries, things that should certainly not be used at liturgy, nor even be encouraged to be circulated amongst the Christian community. Now, it was necessary, as the great bulk of Christian writing began to increase in the 2nd, and the 3rd, and the 4th century, to get some more concerted judgment about what was divinely inspired sacred scripture. Uh, there was a whole welter of works being written in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. And I didn't have time to paste up a whole. Uh, you can find dozens of these titles. I just started to cherry pick some of the more popular apocryphal works that were out there. Uh, there were several different gospels besides the four canonical gospels that you were aware of. Uh, it might strike you as funny, but the apocalypse was actually a very popular genre. And so, you probably only know the Apocalypse of St. John, also called the Book of Revelation. But there were uh, several other apocalypses uh, being written and circulated. One attributed to Peter. This is a Jewish work, but it's basically an apocalypse. Uh, One attributed to Thomas, another to Paul, another to the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, and then another Jewish one called the Seventh Vision of Enoch. But all of these uh, are not legitimately attributed to the figures Uh, whose names are there in the title, but nonetheless were circulating as if these were revelations about the end times from these figures that had, of course, a prominent name either in Judaism or in Christianity. Uh, There were lots of different books with the title of Acts. Uh, There were dozens of epistles, some of them claiming to have apostolic authorship, some of them not, and a whole bunch of other literature, sometimes sayings of our Lord, sometimes, this was a fun genre, uh, what our Lord taught, big big open question, right? In Acts, Jesus teaches the apostles concerning the kingdom of God for 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension. But not a word is said about exactly what Jesus instructs them for those 40 days. Tasty biblical lacuna, insert lots of curious teachings that are alleged to be what Jesus taught his apostles during that time. And then sometimes for those that liked to have the secret knowledge version of Christianity, things per- purporting to be insider information about what Jesus really said, taught, or did, or the inside meaning only fit for the elite. Uh, the tendency of Gnosticism to ape things like Scientology these days, eh, if you're up to it, pay us a little bit more money and we'll let you on the good stuff, uh, is a perennial one. And sometimes there was a, a few decades worth of effort to suppress these texts that were forged by Gnostics for the forwarding of their heresies or the promotion of their sect. Uh, in the name of this or that important or apostolic figure. So, so, some of these writings are interesting. Some of these writings are positively uh, heterodox. And some of them actually contain interesting historical information, just like any other ancient Christian text would. So, how do we get to the bottom of this? Uh, as disputes about basic things like, is Jesus God? And how do we understand the Trinity? And what's the nature of grace in the church? Sort of Christology, Trinity, grace, church rose to prominence in the 3rd and 4th century. There was an even greater need for Christians to understand what was divinely inspired, and therefore a source of theology, and what was not. And so, Origin of Alexandria gives us one of our first attempts to sort out what is divinely inspired sacred scripture. How? By surveying the mind of the Episcopacy. Now, not just one bishop to another, but what do they all think? And can we get some group assessment of what throughout the world Catholic bishops are willing to read at Mass? And he, because he was in Alexandria, enormous textual center, great library of Alexandria was there, incredible trade nexus on the tip of the Nile and also in the Mediterranean Sea, a very prominent and learned city, had access to lots of texts, had access of lots of communication with throughout the Christian world, Origen began to sort of compile a list of what different bishops thought about different books. And he divided it into three categories. Uh, Books that the world's bishops universally accepted, those that were disputed, some said yes, some said no, and those that were universally rejected. And about a century later, Eusebius furthered this work and began to narrow the sieve a little bit more and uh, began to look at what... Books were universally accepted by all the bishops of the Church and those that were accepted by most bishops. And you can see at this stage that the 27 books of the New Testament, the ones that we still recognize, are the ones that were falling into these two categories. In other words, if you had a vote of the world's episcopacy at that moment, uh, you would have found ratified all and only the books that we have in our uh, 27-book New Testament today. So we can see it really coming out of this collective assessment of the mind of the bishops of the early church about what should be considered divinely inspired sacred scripture. And then, uh, by the end of the 4th century, major teachings of prominent bishops confirming this 27-book New Testament throughout their regions. Pope St. the I, the Synod of Rome, St. Athanasius liked to write letters every Easter, and in 367, dedicated one to the topic of the canon, St. Augustine, and then Pope St. Innocent I writing to a bishop of Gaul, uh, all confirming this 27-book New Testament. So by the time we get to the end of the 4th century, the canon's pretty much a settled deal. Uh, Yes, it was infallibly defined by Florence and by Trent, uh, but the earliest councils, Nicaea 325, Constantinople 381, did not actually infallibly define a canon in their acts. They were busy with other stuff, like how does the word relate to the Father? And so, uh, Pretty much, there was not a great concern about the matter of the canon for another thousand years in Christendom until we get to Martin Luther and the Reformation, which is well outside the scope of our business this evening. So, the canon was settled by Episcopal Magisterium, which is a nice point, I think, for us as Catholics. A lot of times Protestants desire to be Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura is basically an end run around the teaching authority of the Church. That's primarily what it was devised to do. And uh, it's got problems from the get-go. If you want to be Sola Scriptura, you have to have a Scriptura. Okay, well, where do we get our Scriptura? Well, we wouldn't have the Scripture we have without the, not the 12 apostles, not the teaching of the earliest church. You actually need to look at the teaching authority of the church from the first into the second, into the third, indeed into the fourth century to historically explain why these 27 books and not the whole welter of other texts that were circulating out there at the time. You have to believe in the ongoing teaching authority of the bishops of the Catholic Church to define such serious matters as what's sacred scripture. So uh, even to begin to be scriptural is to ultimately be brought to a recognition that the way in which the truths Christ wished to confer to his church through scripture were preserved were by the apostles' successors routinely again and again embracing the good, discarding the bad, and ultimately, when necessary, solemnly affirming time and again what was divinely inspired and what was not. So you actually have to come back, if you want to be a biblical Protestant, unfortunately, to the teaching authority of the world's bishops, not just in the first generation or the second generation, but well into the time of Constantine. Uh, perhaps an inconvenient truth, but there it is. Uh, It was my uh, great blessing to be able to talk at great length about this topic. I don't know, some institutes ago, Sabatino probably has the CD somewhere, but we spent the whole evening on where the canon comes from and all the New Testament canon formation. So if you want some more detail on that, you can go and take a look at those talks on the virtual library. Quick overview. Does that make sense? So the stuff that falls off Things that aren't the 27 books of divinely inspired New Testament are Apocrypha, and those fall into several different classes of utility. Some things are interesting historical books. Sometimes we get some of our very early traditions about uh, things surrounding the gospel from the Apocrypha. The Evangelium of James gives us the names of Justus and Dismas as the two thieves crucified on the other side of Jesus Christ, and Longinus as the man who uh, thrust his spear into our Lord's side. Uh, we get some interesting traditions about the Blessed Virgin Mary, like her dedication at the temple. Uh, we get sometimes interesting historical information from the Apocrypha. We treat it critically, as we would any other ancient historical text, because since it's not inspired, uh, we have to always remember when we're dealing with it that it's not inerrant. Right? That's the principle we bring to Sacred Scripture, but not to other texts. So uh, even the good Apocrypha, we have to have our... Uh, You know, radar screen and and flags raised for is this decent literature or is it not? It's certainly not guaranteed to be free from historical error. It's not guaranteed to be free from moral error. Uh, And some of it, the the worst half of the division, you know, is positively written to support heresy. So, Apocrypha spans a wide range from things that may not be the most historically reliable uh, to things that are downright uh, heretical and written to support heretical agendas. And some of it, uh, not being of immediate apostolic uh, origin, uh, was always preserved in the Church as useful, uh, but not the kind of primary witness that were the books of apostolic origin in the New Testament. So maybe the most common piece of Apocrypha some people are aware of is the book called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, dates probably to the end of the first century, early second century, kind of like the earliest catechism of the Church. It's a summary of the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And uh, that book was routinely used, kept, passed on in Christian churches as a great way to instruct catechumens. It was not received in some places. Some places they thought it was scripture early on, uh, but you know most places preserved it even after the can- canonical debate was closed because it's such a laudable work of moral exhortation and spiritual exhortation. You can read it with profit today. Uh, when we do our early Christian writings class at Christendom, uh, I take my students to the Didache all the time, and it, it has a perennial and fresh value that's, that's really great. Uh, but, uh, so some can be morally useful, some can be historically insightful, some could be positively heretical, and so we have to approach it critically. Uh, now this gets us into Barnabas, our topic for tonight. One of these early Christian works is the Epistle of Barnabas. So, uh, it's a good example of the kind of difficulty that attends study of the Apocrypha, these less well-known works, because there's a relative scarcity of information about it. We don't get a super lot of testimony about it from the early church fathers, and therefore there's a lot of scholarly theories, but I'm going to try to save you some time and cut a bright line through the stuff that we can say more reliably about Barnabas. Um, Who wrote it? When did you write it? To whom did you write it? And why? Some basic questions. Internal evidence is scarce. If you look at the text, there's no identification of the author, there's no identification of the audience, and there's only a few clues regarding its date. Um, external evidence is also pretty scarce that is to say things outside of the text things said about the text Um, we do know that they loved it in Alexandria it was frequently mentioned in those canonical lists of bishops so it was known by the 3rd and 4th century outside of Alexandria it was never in the list of books received by all bishops indeed most times it was in the disputed category some had heard of it but most had not received it yet it was never in the trash can It was never amongst those books universally rejected or deemed to be uh, noxious, or heretical, or misleading, or gravely false. Typically, it was passed around as this helpful, non-inspired literature. So people held it with some measure of esteem. In terms of dating it, you've got to be a little bit of a detective, but the, the verse that most scholars come back to is from chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. Regarding the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem... The author says, Furthermore, he, meaning the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, says again, Lo, they who destroyed this temple shall themselves build it. This is happening now. For owing to the war, it was destroyed by the enemy. At present, even the servants of the enemy will build it up again. It's a cryptic remark, and it's probably our best piece of evidence to narrowly pin this document to a time. Uh, most scholars interpret this as a reference to the Roman Emperor Hadrian. Um, now, if you, if you don't know the little history of the temple, still alive and functioning just just fine in our Lord's time, uh, when he died in 33 AD, uh, it survived another what, 37 years until at the outbreak of the first Roman Jewish war. You know, Roman soldiers were already occupying Jerusalem at the time of Christ, and those hostilities already coming to attention in the time of our Lord uh, had their first manifest outbreak of war from 66-67 to 70 AD. And during that first Roman Jewish war, Jerusalem was besieged, the city walls were breached, the temple was destroyed, and the ruins were left there as a memorial to messing with the imperial power of Rome. Uh, But it seems that Hadrian now several emperors later, visited Jerusalem in 130 AD. He was kind of like the JP2 style imperial administrator. He traveled all throughout the realm. He was one of the most traveled Roman emperors, wanted to see every corner of the world that he governed. And so he visited Jerusalem in 130 and uh, he, he had a sort of practice of toleration. Okay, this was a major Jewish capital. Before we destroyed it, we're going to permit the city to start to rebuild. That sparked a whole uh, great... Interest in the possibility would Hadrian let the temple be rebuilt and it seemed initially that he was so inclined and so there was great Jewish hope attached to the rebuilding of the temple Uh, but it seems and it's a bit of a debated matter between Roman historians and some of the rabbinic history but it seems at some point someone persuaded Hadrian that if the temple were dedicated to Yahweh alone uh, this would inevitably end up in some sort of sedition and that there had to be a clearer tie to Roman imperial power to remind them that though they were building their capital city, they were still under Rome. And so they got the brilliant idea of naming it not Jerusalem after it was built, but Alia Capitolina after Jupiter Capitolinus, the imperial god of the Roman Empire, which didn't go over so well regarding the renaming of the holy city from Yahweh is our peace to remember that Jupiter is boss. And then, an even worse idea, that perhaps we should incorporate a large statue to Jupiter in the rebuilt temple, eh, and, uh, and maybe we'll outlaw circumcision too. So, that didn't go over very well. Uh, <laughs> when they began to disturb the ruins of the temple for the purpose of rebuilding it in this wise, that touched off uh, the final, massive, and bloodiest chapter of Roman-Jewish conflict known as the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. Uh, Roman side em- estimates of Jewish losses is something like 580,000 Jews died over the next, oh, what, six years? And uh, two Roman legions were destroyed in an attempt to, dis- to suppress it. It was a terrible, bloody war, but it was an all-out Jewish last-ditch rebellion that was very well organized and took the Romans some effort to crush. And so, uh, back to our key quote. Um, it seems then that this mention of the temple now being rebuilt must be something that happens after Hadrian's visit, but before things go entirely south with the Bar Kokhba rebellion, when nobody was building anything anymore in Jerusalem. Uh, Therefore, a lot of scholars are happy with the date somewhere in the 130 to 132 AD. Some people will put a little further out to 136, the end of the rebellion, but narrows it down to the 130s for us. Some people don't like that, and if you want to read about it on your own, you can find lots of different hypotheses. Some suggest that the building up of the temple actually refers to the church as the new temple. And while that's a very common Christian trope, rooted in our Lord's own teaching, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days, and that we understand the church as the new temple, the third temple, the mystical body of Christ, I think it doesn't sit well textually with what we have. In Barnabas 16.4, this is happening now, For owing to the war, it was destroyed by the enemy, and at present, even the servants of the enemy will build it up again. It seems to refer to the exact same structure that was destroyed. And calling the Gentiles building up the church, the servants of the enemy, just doesn't sound like a normal Christian description of uh, the building up of the church of God through Gentile baptism. So uh, I like the previous theory with Hadrian. There are a few more out there but uh, that's about as far as we can get for dating it. Um, Did St. Barnabas, the well-known traveling companion of Paul, write the letter? Some problems with this. Uh, One chronological, another theological, and a third one, I think is weaker, uh, comes from its birth in Alexandria. Just a quick review of the life of St. Barnabas. He's the one that introduced St. Paul to the church in Jerusalem when everyone else was too scared to touch this guy who used to be breathing murderous threats and conspiracy and putting to death all the Christians he could find. It was Barnabas that stuck his neck out and introduced St. Paul uh, to Peter and to James in Jerusalem. He's also the one that goes looking for Paul when Paul goes back to Tarsus to recollect himself. He's the one that traveled with Paul during fa- Paul's first great missionary journeys in the 40s. He was the one who went with Paul to the Council of Jerusalem in 50 AD to defend the validity of incorporating Gentiles into the church through faith and baptism. Uh, we know he's still alive from 1 Corinthians 9-6. Uh, Paul mentions him as still evangelizing. He's not together with Paul in Corinth. He's somewhere else, but he's still at work. And so around 56-57, he's still alive. Some people look, this is harder to sustain, Colossians 4:10 seems to indicate that John Mark, previously the disciple of Barnabas, has now taken over Barnabas' ministry. And some people presume on the basis of that that perhaps Barnabas has died by the time that Paul writes Colossians in prison around 61 and 63. That also seems to fit with some traditions that record that Barnabas was martyred in Cyprus in 61. And uh, so those two dates fit together nicely. Although uh, those lovely Jesuits who make a life's work out of editing the lives of the saints. They're called the Bollandists. They have a massive collection of things called the Octus and Sanctorum, the lives of the saints, basically. Uh, kind of say all these traditions are relatively late and unreliable. Would that we knew more about the end of the life of Barnabas. We know he was a huge figure in the earliest church, but the extra-biblical records about how he ended his life are pretty scarce. Uh, but in all cases... Uh, we don't have a record of him like a Saint John, you know, coming to our Lord very young and living so long that, you know, even John has to say at the end of his gospel, Jesus didn't say I was going to live forever. You know, that funny, that funny conclusion to John 21, where John wants to make it clear, it's just a rumor that I'm not going to die, Jesus never said that. Um, and so, given that Barnabas is not like that, uh, it seems impossible that he wrote it if we Go for a date in the early 130s. There are also some, some, also some theological problems with the work. Uh, Johannes Quasten, uh, a major Catholic scholar of the early church and the church fathers, I think summarized it best, so I just gave you a quote from his patrology. Modern research has definitely established that the Apostle Barnabas was not the author of this letter because of the decidedly harsh and absolute repudiation of the Old Testament. That might be a little bit of an overstatement, but it is a pretty harsh text in some of its treatment. Uh, Because of this pronounced antipathy to everything Jewish, Barnabas cannot possibly come into consideration as the author of the epistle. A wide chasm yawns between the teachings of St. Paul, to whom Barnabas was a missionary companion, and the views voiced in the epistle of Barnabas. Now, I'm no question, but rereading that a few times before I sat down to draw up this, Yeah, I mean, I think even if you have a a somewhat deep familiarity with the thought of St. Paul, it does not ring true to what you would expect from someone who was Paul's traveling companion and uh, fellow struggler in the establishing of the right view of the Old Testament coming forth into the new. So it's got a somewhat funky theological flavor, and for that reason, other folks, dating issues aside, were skeptical about its authentically Barnabine origin. Um, An argument of lesser value... Everybody knows it and loves it in Alexandria, but it was much slower to catch on elsewhere in the Christian world, leading some people to suggest, perhaps it perhaps it originated in Alexandria. So the big question is, who wrote it? <laughs> and the, the best answer is, we don't know. <laughs> There's really no, uh, no there, there are a lot of other hypotheses that move on from there, but I don't think any of them has captured anything like a majority view in scholarship. And sometimes that's what you get with the apocrypha. Um, but can we guess? Okay, sure, fine, we'll guess. Uh, one common broad theory is that, based on the way it interprets the significance of the Old Testament, it sounds a lot like something coming out of Alexandria. It reads a lot like, for example, when it discusses the significance of the Old Testament dietary laws, uh, the Platonist Jew Philo of Alexandria, who was a contemporary of Christ, wrote a commentary on the Law of Moses called the Special Laws, wrote some of their commentaries, and his approach to the significance of some of these things tries to meld Greek philosophy and Jewish revelation in a way that has a distinctively Alexandrian tone to it, and that tone does seem to be present in Barnabas so based on that uh some most folks suspect probably written in alexandria excuse me alexandria sometime in the second century ad second century based on the dating we just talked about alexandria based on the theological tone so why is it called the epistle of barnabas well one view i think is possibly quite reasonable is that that was the guy's name and it later became conflated with barnabas the apostle why because some of its themes are really pauline I mean, it does ring true to some of Paul's major theological points. So, a letter by Barnabas talks a lot like St. Paul. Maybe people would eventually make the conflation. Can we call it a forgery? Hard to do that, since it never claims to be written by Barnabas. So, usually that would get you thrown into the dumper when they were weeding out the good, the bad, and the ugly in the canon. If you were trying to make it seem like you were Peter, or Paul, or Mary... Uh, in writing this book. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean... Uh, unintentional 60s pop music reference. Uh, uh, but, uh, but in this case, there's no, there's, the book makes no claim, actually, to Barnabine authorship. Uh, so it wasn't thrown out as a forgery because it never claims to be from the Apostle Barnabas, traveling companion of St. Paul. Um, it's called an epistle, but it's not much of an epistle. Uh, if we, I didn't want to take the time to compare because we're going to turn to the text now. But if you look at some of Paul's letters, or those of James, or those of Peter, I picked multiple authors, so you can see I'm not just picking Paul. Uh, most times, epistles start with, you know, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and our brother Sosthenes, who is with us, to the church of God that is at Corinth, grace and peace to you. Or you can look at the beginning of James with Peter, and there's typically an identification of the sender and the recipient, just like your email to, from, subject line. Uh, we don't have any of that in Barnabas. It also lacks a parting salutation. Paul's famous for having long goodbyes and mentioning all kinds of personages he knows about in this or that community. No particular person's mentioned in Barnabas and doesn't have this formal style that we see in a lot of Paul's letters to churches. So, why they call it a letter? Clauston, again, I think, had a good quote. I didn't just take from him, but he had these two, and I thought they were gems. He says, early Christian writers looked upon the epistle as the only proper genre for instruction in piety, and and resorted to it even when they were not addressing a limited circle of readers. Hence its form is merely a literary convention. Well, let's say it this way. Uh, You wouldn't deign to call your thing a gospel if you were writing in a humble fashion, and you wouldn't call it a revelation, and because you're not claiming to write the history of this or that apostolic person, you wouldn't call it an act you know, the acts of so-and-so. So, So what do you have as ways of conveying Christian instruction outside of that? Well, uh, typically, a lot of letters being written. So, that's why it takes the form of a letter in its genre. Now, we're going to take a look at what's inside of it. Um, I want to look at, I'm sorry my letters didn't come out very, I don't know if anyone can see A, B, and C, but I wanted to take a look at Barnabas with respect to three different things. Uh, The symbolism of the Old Testament covenant, The concern about its excessively negative view of Jewish observances. And lastly, uh, the concluding moral instruction, which I think you might find just as relevant today as when it was written, what now, some 1900 years ago. How does Barnabas deal with the Old Testament? Just a little background. Uh, Remember we're talking about early second century. And the big picture here is that the church is still coming out of what's called the Judaizing controversy. Um, I talked about this a little bit when I talked about Romans and Galatians in those lectures. Maybe you know this is a big struggle, right? The church is born out of Judaism. It springs from Jewish roots. All the original Christians were Jews. And it's not until Acts 10 that we have the first Gentile incorporated into the church the beginning of the fulfillment of our Lord's great commission, go therefore and baptize all nations. Well, it took them to Acts 10 to baptize at least one person from one other nation and the rest of his household. So they got one household in in Acts 10. But there arises from Paul and Barnabas' missionary journeys, bringing in Gentiles all over in Acts 11, 12, 13, this big question. Some Jewish Christians don't like the fact that Gentiles are just receiving baptism and walking straight into the church. This seems deeply problematic. All the rest of us followed covenant history. We were circumcised, we kept the law of Moses, we waited for the Messiah, we understood him as the heir of David, and now we've got Jesus Christ. You guys are just skipping right to the end. That doesn't seem right. Uh, The scripture records a faction of people, alternatively called Pharisee Christians, sometimes false brethren, fake Christians, and uh, sometimes called Judaizers because they wanted to make everyone Jewish first before they could become Christian. And their slogan seems to have been, unless you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's a major church dividing issue. Yeah, Are you saved or not? We believe the gospel and we're baptized. We thought we were saved. And now you're saying we're not? And so we have a first ecumenical council of the church. Uh, In Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, which firmly taught, no, the Gentiles are saved as we are, through faith in the good news and through baptism. And it's not the old law that saves, but rather, it's faith and baptism that incorporate one, Jew or Gentile, same way, into the new covenant. So, nice pattern in the history of ecumenical councils. Just because a council bothered to teach something doesn't mean the error goes away. (laughs) <laughs> it persists. The Judaizing era persists so much that Paul has to write Romans and Galatians, both explicitly hammering on this point after the council. And then St. Irenaeus of Lyon, second century bishop and martyr, has a nice book called Against the Heresies. It catalogs all kinds of early Christian heresies and tells us that schismatic groups, breakaways of this origin, Judaizing groups, called the Ebionites and the Nazarenes, lasted well into the second century of the Church, well into the time frame of our epistle of Barnabas. So there's a big question here that the author, no doubt, wants to emphasize the importance of the New Covenant. And uh, Barnabas shows us some significant struggles in the early Church. We receive all these nice packages tied up in doctrinal bows, well and neatly worked out, Hard questions, struggled over for centuries, and you just open up the Catechism and read it and say, ah, that's a relatively painless way forward. And it is, <laughs> but it stands on the you know, foundation of centuries of theologians, sometimes working through many controversies to articulate something, ah, just so. And so, uh, in the time of Barnabas, we see the struggle you know, of people to articulate fundamental questions. Like, what's the relationship? What's the balance between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What's the relationship between the covenant that God made with Moses and the covenant that God made with Christ? And a lot of times these days, we're familiar with short little slogans that get us the synthesis correctly. Uh, One phrase you often hear Catholics say, uh, it's a good and, and faithful one, the Old Testament is fulfilled by the New Testament. You know, fulfilled connotes some kind of continuity, right? But also the superiority of the new over the old. One's on the way, the other one gets all the way there. Um, You could think of our Lord's own saying, Matthew 5.17, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Or sometimes we say the Old Testament foreshadows the new. Think of Paul, Colossians 2.17, These, meaning the precepts of the old law, are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You literally think of what a foreshadowing is. If the sun is behind me, my shadow is cast on the ground in front of me, you see the shadow before you see the thing coming. It looks like it, but it's nowhere near as vivid or full or or real or well-known until you see the the person who is being foreshadowed. Um, Or, a very common Pauline one, the Old Testament prepares for the new. It's set up to enactment. The Old Testament, for example, convicts of sin, but the New Testament saves. The Old Testament makes promises. The New Testament makes good on those promises. Uh, In this case, the relationship is not sort of the Old Testament gets you three quarters of the way there and the New Testament gets you the last quarter, but it's rather the Old Testament sets up the bucket, the cup, as it were, and the New Testament fills it and shows you that it's full. Now, contrast that to some things that were going on also in the early church. Positions of heterodoxy. The new is a little too new. We need to carefully subordinate it to the old. <laughs> we don't want to rupture. We want to put this safely within Jewish confines. Or, the New Testament cancels the old. Thank God it's gone. Right? Or even worse, Marcion of Sinope, the New Testament shows us exactly how bad the Old Testament was. These are familiar positions, perhaps, of of heterodoxy. Um, So the challenge for Barnabas is to show us the superiority of the new to the old, and to show us the necessity of the new for all those who wish to follow Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, and to show us how the Old Testament provided a preparation for the new. So this is difficult work, and the author sometimes uh, does well and sometimes does not so well. The New Testament for Barnabas is clearly superior because it reveals... Sorry, the the New Testament is superior because it reveals uh, what the Old Testament only hinted at, only foreshadowed. That which was veiled in shadow to the Jews is now revealed plainly in Christ. And so just as you wouldn't want to cling to the shadow, but rather the reality, so too you should cling no more uh, to the laws of Moses, but rather cling only to the laws of Christ. Just like Paul, the author wants to hammer home that the Old Testament did not save. It's not a question whether you can get saved old school or new school or both. uh, But it's a question of the Old Testament does not save. So here's a nice example. I'm going to start with some things that will sound a lot like the scripture to you. Um, Barnabas 1, 6 through 7. These are not on the handout. We're going to get to the big handout at the end. Um, Barnabas says, or the author says... There are then three doctrines of the one Lord. The hope of life is the beginning and end of our faith. So hope for life eternal. And righteousness is the beginning and end of judgment. That's what we want all of our decisions to be, righteous. Love of joy and of gladness is the testimony of the works of righteous. This is kind of the uh, fruit of the Christian life, is a life of joy and gladness. Then he continues... For the Lord has made known to us through the prophets things past and things present, and has given us the first fruits of the taste of things to come. And when we see these things coming to pass one by one, as he said, we ought to make a richer and deeper offering for fear of him. So when we see the fullness of the New Testament compared to the Old, all the more should we want to cling to the New and be enthusiastically members of the New. You can imagine that serving to counsel those that might want to slide backwards into Judaism and forget the distinctive newness of Christian revelation. Or something very similar to Hebrews. Barnabas chapter 2 talks about the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. No more the many and various animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, but just one sacrifice, now the sacrifice of Christ. Barnabas 2, starting in verse 3. While then, these things remain in holiness towards the Lord. Wisdom, prudence, understanding, and knowledge. Rejoice with them. For he has made plain to us through all the prophets that he needs neither sacrifices, nor burnt offerings, nor oblations, saying in one place, What is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings, and desire none of the fat of lambs, or blood of bulls and goats not even when ye come to appear before me. For who has required these things at your hands? Henceforth tread my courts no more. If ye bring me flour, it is vain. Incense is an abomination to me. I cannot away with your new moons and Sabbaths. End quote. And then Barnabas continues, These things then he abolished in order that the new law of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is without the yoke of necessity, that's a quotation from Peter and Acts, might have its oblation not made by man. That Christ is the perfect offering provided once and for all, infinitely superior to all of those flower and animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. You could compare that to something right from Hebrews. And I did it in the slides when they're back up. Hebrews 9.11, Paul writes, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the one not made with human hands that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not taking the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of God, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish, Purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred which redeems them from transgressions under the first covenant. A little bit heavier than than Barnabas, but a very similar theme, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. Back to Barnabas, Barnabas 5. For it was for this reason that the Lord endured to deliver up his flesh to corruption, that we should be sanctified by the remission of sin, that is, by his sprinkled blood. Almost the same expression Paul uses in Hebrews. For the scripture concerning him relates partly to Israel, partly to us. And it speaks thus. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. That's Isaiah 53, the suffering servant prophecy. He was brought as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb dumb before its shearer. Therefore, we ought to give great thanks to the Lord that he has given us knowledge of the past and wisdom for the present and that we are not without understanding for the future. So you can see a similarity of theme there if we just compare Paul and Barnabas on the superiority of Christ. Then he continues, why did Christ come to earth? Something that you could find again in Paul, maybe in Romans 5, or maybe a little bit later in Athanasius, so that our Creator might be our Redeemer. Or maybe just in the prologue of John's Gospel, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, you know, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So to hear, Barnabas writes, Moreover, my brethren, if the Lord endured to suffer for our life, though He is the Lord of all the world, To whom God said before the foundation of the world, let us make man in our image and our likeness. How then did he endure to suffer at the hand of a man? So Barnabas asked the question, why did Jesus, who was the one, you know, the word was in dialogue with God the Father at the very beginning of Genesis, why did he suffer? Learn then, the prophets who received grace from him prophesied of him, and he, in order that he might destroy death and show forth the resurrection from the dead, because he must needs be made manifest in the flesh, endured, in order to fulfill the promise he made to the fathers and himself prepare for himself the new people and show while he was on earth that he himself will raise the dead and judge the risen. So that our creator can be our redeemer, can be the first fruits of the resurrection and can gather for himself a new risen people. That you could take as it's a little bit different expression, but something that's perfect in sentiment to the things that we find in St. John and in St. Paul. There's a lot of interpretation of the Old Testament that goes on in the middle of Barnabas. Why did God give these different laws to the Jews? And it might be too big of a point to dive into here, but I think Henri de Lubac is fundamentally correct in distinguishing two ways that early church fathers tended to understand the symbolism of the Old Testament. Uh, I've distinguished two things, what I'll call Christian allegory or New Testament allegory, where we see Old Testament events prefiguring New Testament ones. Like when Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, referring to the cross. Uh, Or when Paul refers to the mystery of the church in Israel as an allegory of the two children of Jacob. Or when Peter says that our baptism is like the passage of the Jews through the Red Sea. In all of those cases, you can see like one Old Testament event setting up for a New Testament event. The little maxim I, I like to use is uh, an Old Testament event prefigures that for which it prepares. It paves the way, but also shows the fullness. Uh, the Greeks were also doing allegory, but of a rather different nature. They tended to try to seize the value in some of their now-cast-off pagan myths and say, well, we don't think these are historically true anymore. See, what they're trying to do is for a simple people, teach in a symbolic way what we now understand very clearly through philosophy. That's a very different approach, is it not? And, uh, you know, it doesn't care about the historicity of the thing being allegorized. And what is it used to spring from symbol to referent? Well, probably, you know, Greek philosophy, Greek thought, things that seem plausible to you, or some other value system is brought in, as opposed to the value system of biblical history to make the leap from this thing to what it signifies. Sometimes Barnabas does the former, and sometimes he does the latter. So Christ the scapegoat could find this in a whole bunch of other fathers. Looks at the Old Testament law concerning the scapegoat and says, Why? Well, notice the one that's condemned to death is a type of Christ. And the scarlet wool that's tied onto him is ultimately a figure of the long scarlet robe that he wears, that he's covered in the blood of his passion. And that's the thing that's going to make him recognized publicly as king of the Jews. And just as the scapegoat was driven out of town and reviled and thorns were placed on its head, so too Christ. And so what he's doing is just saying, look at how this Old Testament ritual and what it did in this atoning goat sacrifice set up for what Christ did in a much fuller way. That's probably your standard Christian t- style of allegory. But ritual law of the Jews set us up for the fulfillment of this ritual in Jesus Christ. But he switches modes sometimes, and sometimes this gets curious. I find these things uh, a little bit arbitrary from time to time, because what he's doing is looking at the kosher laws, which are perplexing, and trying to come up with examples for why God gave these prescriptions to the Jews. Don't eat bacon, don't eat shellfish, don't eat weasel. Weasel's in there. Don't eat hawk, don't eat eagle. Uh, and why did God give all these dietary prescriptions? Here Barnabas takes a a straight-up kind of Alexandrian approach. doesn't look at biblical history or necessarily even biblical morality and just says, well, the animals are symbolic of virtues, or vices in this case. Swine are prohibited because that means we shouldn't be like swine. With men who are like swine, that is to say, when they have plenty, they forget the Lord. But when they are in want, they recognize the Lord, just as the swine, when it, eats does not know its master but when it is hungry it cries out and after receiving food is silent again so why were the Jews forbidden to eat swine basically don't be a swine (laughs) don't grunt for God every time you want something and then forget him when you're full of what you got Um, likewise the legal animals the ruminants are nice because they meditate we even use that word right ruminate basically comes from chewing your cud uh, or so too they can't eat the eagle or the hawk or the kite or the crow because these are predatory birds and they tell us to be not like predatory men who do not know how to gain their food by their labor and sweat but plunder other people's property and in iniquity uh, so he's kind of cooking up symbolic reasons for these Old Testament legal food prohibitions can you find them anywhere in the scripture? Nope. no could you perhaps come up with equally creative reasons for other animals? Yep. Uh, is it morally helpful when they're aligned with decent virtues? Sure. Is it biblical interpretation? Probably not. So, uh, but then he switches modes back again and you can find a reading of the temple that is something very similar to what we find, we're coming short on time, to what you might find in 1 Peter 2. He says, Okay, The new temple, what is it? It's built within us, and we are the living stones of that new temple, the church. So some terms of Barnabas, again, ring very true to other early Christian writing, indeed divinely inspired writing, the first letter of St. Peter, our first pope. Now, I put on the slide, and maybe I'll briefly click through it, some of the things that get Barnabas in trouble in the commentary tradition. Um, He calls the temple vain and heathen-like, for they consecrated him, meaning God, in the temple, almost like the heathen. But don't they remember that God says that he can't be contained in a building? Well, sure, the Jews remembered that, but that's probably not what they thought that they were doing. (laughs) Nonetheless, uh, Barnabas finds the Jewish reliance on the temple to be vain and to be rightfully their embarrassment when the temple has been knocked down. Also, has a rather severe view of the Jews carrying out the Old Covenant. So, yes, they're the bearers of the Old Covenant for about a day or two. In his view, the Jews had the Old Covenant from the time that God gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai to the time when Moses cast the tablets on the ground because of the golden calf. And after that, they had it not. They had broken it, and we were just waiting for the Christian era after that. Not the biblical view of the Old Testament from the time of Moses to the time of Christ. Um, Even further, this is usually the howler cited in all literature. Uh, Barnabas attributes the Jewish ongoing practice of circumcision from Moses to Christ as due to, quote, uh, the seduction or the being misled by an evil angel. (laughs) So there you see kind of a nice Alexandrian view of circumcision as a mutilation of the flesh, and of these people and their physical observances being misled by something that was not spiritual but physical and thus evil. That, some of you are already kind of like, mm-hmm. And you can get a sense that this is departing in tenor from typically what you might find throughout the New Testament. Um, it's true. There is a spiritual value to circumcision. And it's also true that uh, at the same time, no New Testament writer condemns the Jews for keeping the practice of circumcision from the time of Abraham to the time of Christ. Even Paul lets Jewish Christians be circumcised, so long as they don't think that that's their salvation. So very different from the tenor of Barnabas. Uh, I gave you a couple quotes, just to back that up, from St. Paul. And a couple more quotes from St. Paul. St. Paul. Uh, that, prep, that presents the law of Moses as necessary and good, but preparatory. Why did God give the law to the Jews for Paul? To prevent transgression until Christ came who can remit sins. Uh, to convict the Jews of their sins, so that they might understand Christ's mercy for what it is. And very positively, the law is described by Paul as Israel's custodian, disciplinarian, nanny. To form Israel in its adolescence until the Christ came. So would Paul think that the observance of the law from the day after the golden calf to the time of Christ was somehow wicked? I dare say he would not. So uh, there sometimes you see a rather different theological tone. The last thing I'll wrap up with is the thing on your handout where you can take a look at uh, the concluding moral instructions of Barnabas. And this takes us from the rough field of his view of some of the Old Testament to something that is flawless and perennial. Something that you can find uh, also copied in other early Christian literature. The Didache has its own set of moral instructions, much like this. And some of the things that Barnabas wrote are just as uh, useful to us today as they were in the 130s. He talks about the way of light versus the way of darkness. In the Didache, it's called the way of life versus the way of death. And this way of presenting two paths uh, to the reader, whether Jew or later Christian, goes so far back that we can find it in the Canticle of Moses, where God says, Behold, I have set before you this day life and death. Choose life so that all might be well with you and you can arrive at the promised land. And Christian authors took that up and used the same set of exhortations to say, if you want to get to the heavenly promised land, here's what you've got to do. And so we get an early summary of morality. Remember, the early Gentile church did not have the law of Moses, which was the all-encompassing law book for the Jews. So there was some working out of how do we live a Christ-centered morality. Where's the nitty-gritty? You know, it's the birth of Catholic moral theology. And what do we see in Barnabas 19? So this is on your handout. The way of light is this. If any man desire to journey to the appointed place, he means heaven, let him be zealous in his... Ooh... works (laughs) just a little faith works commentary there therefore the knowledge given to us of this kind that we may walk in it is as follows now think about three things when we go through here the ten commandments the beatitudes right and some of the basic things that you find in Paul's discussion of morality like in first Corinthians thou shalt love thy maker thou shalt fear thy creator Thou shalt glorify him who redeemed thee from death, so God the Father and God the Son. Be simple in heart and rich in spirit, similar to the first beatitude. Thou shalt not join thyself to those who walk in the way of death. That's a paraphrase of this first psalm. Thou shalt hate all that is not pleasing to God. Can't think of a direct biblical reference, but it sounds like pretty good advice. Thou shalt hate all all hypocrisy. Jesus didn't have kind words for hypocrites. Thou shalt not desert the commandments of the Lord. Continues, thou shalt not exalt thyself. Think of the Magnificat. Right? Uh, But shall be humble minded in all things. Right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Thou shalt not take glory to thyself. Thou shalt form no evil plan against thy neighbor. And this translation said, thou shalt not let thy soul be froward. What's froward? (laughs) Contentious. Some familiar instructions relating to the 6th and ninth commandments. Thou shalt not commit fornication. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit sodomy. You can take that also from 1 Corinthians 6.9, Paul's laundry list of sexual sins. Thou shalt not let the word of God depart from thee amongst the impurity of any man. So don't be trying to talk gospel in the middle of the uh, X-rated movie. Thou shalt not respect persons in the reproving of transgression. That is to say, if you're going to call someone out for what they're doing wrong, whether they're king or peasant, you don't pull punches. You don't let the person of a higher station in life get away with stuff and only counsel those you deem less than you. Counsel everybody. Thou shalt be meek, thou shalt be quiet. Thou shalt fear the words which thou hast heard. Thou shalt not bear malice against thy brother. Thou shalt not be in two minds whether it shall be or not. This one's harder in English. If you were uh, dipsukos, literally two-souled, it meant that one day you were living like a Christian and another day you were living like a secular person. It's kind of fish or cut bait. Either commit to the Christian hope and the Christian life or don't. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. That's right from the commandments. Thou shalt love thy neighbor more than thy own life. That's Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself, taken through the mandatum novum davo vobis. I give to you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Right? It's kind of giving us Christ's example of love. This one's interesting. Thou shalt not procure abortion. Thou shalt not commit infanticide, right, next to one another. And from the earliest times, from the Didache also has a clear statement against procuring abortion, so too here. And then, just as you wouldn't kill your son in spirit, in body, don't kill them in spirit. Thou shalt not withhold thy hand from thy son or from thy daughter, but shall teach them the fear of God from their youth up. Just as important as giving them natural life and keeping them in that natural life is keeping them in the spiritual life. Don't be covetous. Don't be haughty. A nice counsel. Receive the trials that befall thee as good, knowing that nothing happens without God. A Christian attitude of humble trust in the face of all adversity. Some other precepts. But since we're over time, we'll wrap up. Um, remember the day of judgment, day and night. Seek the society of the saints. Either laboring by speech and going out to exhort, and striving to save souls, or working with thine hands for the ransom of thy sins. In other words, giving the fruit of your hands to others as alms. Don't be hesitant to give. Don't grumble. Don't cause quarrels. Confess your sins. Thou shalt not betake thyself to prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of light. And then a brief paragraph on the darkness. But the way of the black one is crooked and full of cursing, for it is the way of death eternal with punishment. And in it are the things that destroy their soul. Idolatry, contentiousness, arrogance of power, hypocrisy, double-heartedness, adultery, murder, robbery, pride, transgression, fraud, malice, self-sufficiency, that sounds like a virtue, but what he means is the people that believe they can justify themselves and save themselves without the grace of God, Enchantments, obvious magic, covetousness, the lack of the fear of God, persecutors of the good, haters of truth, lovers of lies, knowing not the reward of righteousness, Uh, people that don't attend to the widow and orphan, those that love vanities, prone to speaking evil, murderers of children, corruptors of God's creation, turning away the needy, oppressing the afflicted, advocates of the rich, unjust judges of the poor, altogether sinful." And for our Catholic view that likes to emphasize the need not only to protect life from conception to birth, but also afterwards, notice the Catholic social gospel at work here. Not only is it important not to murder children in the womb, but it's important to provide for them, even if they are widows and orphans, and anyone that comes to you with empty hands. So, as Barnabas concludes, so too I leave you. Um, I beseech you again and again to be good lawgivers to one another, Remain faithful counselors of each other. Remove from yourselves all hypocrisy. Now may God, who is Lord over all the world, give you wisdom, understanding, prudence, knowledge, patience, and be ye taught of God, seeking out what the Lord requires from you, and see that ye be found faithful in the day of judgment. If there is any memory of good, meditate on these things and remember me, that my desire and my watchfulness may find some good end. I beseech you, asking it of your favor. While the fair vessel, that means your body, is with you, fail not in any of them, but seek these things diligently and fulfill every commandment, for these things are worthy. Wherefore, I was the more zealous to write you of my ability to give you gladness. May you gain salvation, children of peace and love. The glory, the Lord of glory and, the, and of all grace be with your spirit. So that's the conclusion of Barnabas, and that's the conclusion of my talk, and that's my concluding wish uh, for all of you. Barnabas is a little long, I was a little long, but I hope uh, you have some better grasp of it now that you can go and read it on your own. It's 21 chapters, so it's an appreciable amount of pages, but now that you know what Apocrypha is, the background of the text, some of its high and lower points, uh, you can easily read it in an hour at night with hopefully much more profit than you would have unaided. Thank you.
0: How are we, you know, regular people, supposed to know when we read something like that what we should believe and what we shouldn't believe?
1: <laughs> oh, it's a hard question. Um, I mean, the best, the thing you're ultimately left with is looking at uh, decent Catholic commentaries on these works of early Christian literature. There are some, you know, multi-volume editions that simply are... Uh, Trying to get a lot of these texts in print. Maybe they have footnotes, maybe they don't have so many footnotes. But you can also find, you know, the scholarship of, of, of sound Catholic theologians that are, you know, experts in the theology of the early church, the early church fathers. Um, you know, I, I trotted out twice here this evening, Quaston, uh, who generally appraises the soundness or the orthodoxy of the various sources i mean his four volume patrology is pretty beefy but it's written as a reference work so you know you might open it up and flip through to this particular apocryphal book and see what he has to say and um, usually tries to assess the noteworthy positive doctrinal things that might tie it with the main orthodox traditions of the church and then other things that are spurious or if it's an outright forgery or You know, if it was devised by this heretical sect, you'll often get an overview in in Catholic introductions to these early Christian works. Certainly has not been a secret. You know, there are generations of scholars who have basically tried to properly appraise this or that piece in the history of Christianity. So there are guides by by people who are eminently learned men in the field that can start to sift through the significance of the document. But yeah, it is a mixed bag. All these things can be a mixed bag. Thank you, Doctor. Is there anything that you can say to generally characterize the attitude of the Christians of the early centuries toward this work? Particularly, did they hold it as valuable and did they pray over it? Yeah, good question. Uh, The thing that we seem to know for sure is that it was received early and enthusiastically in Alexandria. Uh, I was going to trot out a list of, we have some nice uh, compilations of who thought what about various apocryphal works that have been compiled. Since the talk was already a bit long and I did want to actually talk about the epistle for a little bit, I cut out some of that. But uh, St. Clement of Alexandria received it as canonical. His opinion uh, was that this book should be considered divinely inspired sacred scripture. Origin of Alexandria, his personal opinion was that it should be received as such um, this did not seem to be the majority opinion of those bishops that Origen himself surveyed. That is to say, outside the region of Alexandria, it seems to have had a lot less repute, fewer people knew about it, and also a lot less, therefore, reception, that it was not received by many churches as divinely inspired. Uh, its knowledge and fame grew throughout the 3rd and 4th centuries, perhaps due to the prominence of Alexandria, uh, but it never was in a position that it was received by even the majority of bishops, and certainly not all of them. But it was slow to grow out of Alexandrian usage and to even become on the radar screen of, say, the, the church in southern Europe or further east in Asia Minor. Uh, so it seems they used it in Alexandria. The other interesting data point we have is that uh, Codex Sinaiticus, which is a 5th century, nearly complete copy of the New Testament... Uh, and interestingly, it alone, there are some other early ones that, that we found, like Codex Vaticanus and, um, come on Eric, Codex Alexandrinus, which are also early complete scriptures, or relatively complete. But Sinaiticus, again from Sinai, so somewhere near Alexandria, had Barnabas, as well as the Didache, appended at the end of its New Testament. So it seems that, and we know this happens from time to time, some people would either... Uh, you know hold a larger canon early on and simply include those works because they believed like they did in Alexandria they were canonical or uh, even Jerome when he was producing the Vulgate produced as an appendix some of these more noteworthy apocrypha lest knowledge of them should perish altogether and so some people you know would would copy them at the end Uh, just so that something that was potentially useful would not be lost to the sands of time because they knew that if it wasn't scripture, the chances of it being propagated were a lot more slim. So in Alexandria, you know, they probably read it. They probably had it as a reading. Yeah, they might have used it for a a meditation or a prayer text. It's possible. Being that that this was probably read in, in at least some of the churches, um, what would be the value to us today? I guess going back to one of the earlier questions, what was the value to the people at the time? And what is the value to us today reading this, not simply from a scholarly standpoint, from a, from a spiritual standpoint, trying to, to gain some value for our own life out of it? Sure. Uh, and that's maybe, maybe the last should have been first. The, uh, the moral exhortations, you know, on the practical level, uh, you know, it's only my personal endorsement, but I find nothing the matter with any of them. They seem to be just as, uh, fresh and perennial a reminder of what a well-rounded Christian morality looks like as, you know, if you're gonna put it on two pages, that's not a bad two pages to start with. Um, so the devotional aspect of it, the moral aspect is, is still quite fresh and noteworthy. Um, it's a good reminder too that, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too theological for Sabatino, but, uh, we, we forget... <laughs> <And> you, wanted, <laughs> you wanted something edgy and practical. And so you probably don't find it edgy and practical for me to say, like, it makes us aware of the great gift we have from all these centuries of settled doctrine. Because to me, mm-hmm. when you see someone like the author of Barnabas in the trenches, trying to say, like, people don't slide backwards into unalloyed Judaism... Like, don't be a Judaizer insisting everyone has to be Jewish first and then become Christian. Uh, to do that, he wants to be careful at firmly putting in a lower station the position of the Old Testament and in fact pushes a little too hard and puts it down into the mud. Um, and getting that balance right is hard. And we so readily, like if you look at the, the text of this time, just presume, okay, the Old fills the New, there's kind of a nice continuity, but it crescendos uh, but this was a huge Christian struggle, right? And when we want to get, if you want to get deeper into Paul, I actually really enjoyed this as like a, a contrast, a study in contrast. Where does Barnabas go differently than Paul, and why does this not, and I thought the audience also had a pretty manifest sentiment when some of these things came up, but like, no, this is not what the scripture sounds like when it speaks of the Old Testament. And you could really cut your teeth and get a nice sharp contrast between like, What Paul really teaches and what you recognize as excessive by looking at this framing of the relationship of the Old Testament. I mean, You can kind of do vicariously the work of the early church in trying to get clear in your own mind how the old relates to the new. That's why we do historical Christology, right? You study all the Trinity and Incarnation heresies so that you can get clear in your own head, yes, that, not that. No, not that. Yes, that. And Barnabas shows us that being worked out. Thank you very much, Professor. All right.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155.